I'm Pastor Michael Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. I'd like to welcome you and to thank you for listening to our Sunday morning sermons. I hope that they're a blessing to you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Last week, we looked at the story of God miraculously providing meat and manna for the grumbling people of Israel. They began to complain because they were hungry. And they spoke against Moses and, by extension, Yahweh, God, as Moses is God's messenger and representative. We talked about ingratitude in spite of God's good gifts to them and how Jesus Christ is the true bread from heaven, the true manna. And we spoke about how the Eucharist, Holy Communion, is God's daily provision for us, the daily bread that we ask for in the Lord's Prayer where the divine life is communicated to us, which is why the Eucharist is the focal point of all Christian worship. And now moving on, we turn to the third story of testing from the book of Exodus. Oftentimes we place a lot of presumptions on God. We presume that since we worship, we're somehow able to bypass the consequences of our choices that God will get us out of sticky situations that we wouldn't have even been in had we listened to his guidance in the first place. And that could have taken the form of, God, I promise you, if you get me out of this, I will go to church every week. Please, I promise, I really mean it this time. And maybe you do get out of this sticky situation, and you might come to church for two or three weeks, And then you kind of stop going to church until something bad happens again. God, I promise this time, really, if you get me out of this, I'll go back to church. Or I'll pray more. Or I'll fast more. Many years ago, in uh, the Word of Faith tradition, of which I was a part when I was uh, a young man and a a teenager, there was a pastor who wrote a a book called uh, Faith, Foolishness, or Presumption. And in the book, he tried to outline the dividing line between what we could reasonably ask God for with an expectation of return on the request versus what he saw as foolish presumption of assuming God would give us whatever we wanted beyond our faith's ability to take hold of it. The great irony, of course, is that his definition of faith is exactly the same thing as foolishness and is also, in fact, presumption. And when I read this story of the children of Israel, it reminded me of that book. Because when we look at this story, we see at the end of it, the children of Israel presume that they can make demands of Yahweh, of God. So at this point of the story, they've been walking in the wilderness for a little bit of time. And like we noted last week, the wilderness is not a hospitable place to be walking around in. I don't know if you've ever gone hiking up a mountain or if you've had time to actually go out into a wilderness area. Wildernesses are not nice places to be. Lack of resources, lack of water. They had the lack of bread and the lack of meat. And and this story, they don't have any water. And they demand Moses give them the water. And Moses replies, hey, Slow your roll, you might not want to test God like this. But let's put ourselves in their shoes for a minute, too. So remember what life was like in Egypt, okay? They were put to manual labor. They were slaves. Their baby boys were killed. 
Things were very bad for them there. God delivers them. He leads them through the Red Sea. He sweetens the bitter water. He gives them meat and gives them bread from heaven. You would think by this time, they, by the time they start to get thirsty, that someone would say, hey, remember that time a few weeks ago where we complained and God's like, you shouldn't do that and God gave us bread from heaven and sent us a bunch of meat? Remember that? Wasn't that great how God loved us and provided for us? Maybe we can trust that God knows what he's doing and that Moses knows what God is doing. And Moses is leading us in the right direction, even if we don't understand where he's taking us, even if we don't see clearly what's the destination or why we're going there. God has done all of these things for us in the past. Maybe, just maybe, he might provide water for us when we need it. You would think that, that they would think that. You would think that that would be part of their thought process. But you'd be wrong. Instead, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? To me, the children of Israel feel like when my three-year-old Isaac, when he really wants something and he gets really whiny. <laughs> I, mean, I, just, I can't help but make that, that comparison. Like he's three, so I can't expect him to think back on all the times I've provided for him or his mother has provided for him or the good things that we have given him. We can't expect him to have, to have that thought process. But you would imagine that a group of people who have seen the mighty acts of God would react a little bit differently. Why did you bring us up? Just to kill us. And not only us, our kids and our livestock. And God's mighty acts on their behalf get decontextualized through their hunger and through their thirst. And it turns into accusation. You brought us out here to kill us, God. What would be the point? Things get so bad, Moses is scared for his life. And he prays and he says, God, these people, they're going to stare at the point where they're going to stone me. So God shows up. And God says, pass on before the people, take with you the elders and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, and I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So Moses, he, God says, I will stand before you on the rock. So notice that God, God himself is going to stand on the rock. And we remember, when we think back through all of these stories that we've dealt with, God was in the cloud, God was in the fire. God was in the burning bush. God is going to descend on the rock and stand on the rock. Right? It's a visible manifestation of the divine presence. And Moses takes the elders with him because the elders are the ones who have their boots on the ground, as it were, among the people. And what happens in the following chapter is Moses divides up the leadership of the entire camp of people so it's not an overwhelming burden on himself. So they will come with Moses to the rock and they will see Yahweh themselves and that will reinforce that Moses is Yahweh's God's messenger. Don't mess with him and don't mess with me. Moses strikes the rock and water flows out enough to satisfy everyone's thirst and then the story ends with the question the people of, the, of Israel say is the Lord among us or not? Now, that might sound like a rhetorical question. 
But what it means is, and this whole episode, is that the people of Israel lack faith. And when confronted with the harsh reality of life traveling in the wilderness, they immediately lose that faith. They lose that trust. What's on exhibit here in this story isn't so much the power of God, but rather, as the commentator Brueggemann notes, Israel's inappropriate and remarkable lack of faith. And he goes on about this, the question, how that question that they ask is a demand that Yahweh must right now give an account of his faithful sovereignty. Israel misconstrues this act as it imagines that Yahweh's sovereignty can be reduced to meeting Israel's demands. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And this is the testing they experience here at the waters. And like we saw last week, it is testing that they absolutely fail. So let's talk a little bit about some of the lessons here. Let's talk about grace. The waters here aren't just a sign of their failure, right? Or the episode by the, the rock where the waters come out isn't, isn't a sign just of the failure. The, the commentator in white notes that the waters here are also signs of God's grace. In spite of their lack of faith, in spite of their doubt, God still graciously gives them water to quench their thirst. And the water provided them comes directly from God. God is the source, not from any natural means. That's the whole point of the water coming out of a rock. When I'm thirsty, I go to my refrigerator, I take my little metal bottle that I bought from Aldi, I go, I put some ice in it, I put it under the water dispenser, it gets run through the filter, and I fill up my water bottle, and I have water, and I drink it, and I go about my day. When I'm thirsty, I don't go outside. I have a big rock by the side of the house. I don't take a stick and hit the rock and say, come out water, and water sprays up into the air, and I catch it in my bottle, and I drink, and I go inside. God is the source. God is their source. There's nothing here in the text to indicate that there are any surrounding streams or fishes of water. God brings them to a random rock at Horeb, and he causes water to burst forth. St. Ambrose notes, did not grace work a result contrary to nature so that the rock poured forth water, which by nature it did not contain? All of God's good gifts to us flow from his sheer goodness and grace. And oftentimes, well, we don't deserve God's grace because we've all turned away from God. But God still offers his grace to us anyway. And those of us who are in Christ have become recipients of that grace. And if you're watching this or listening to this on the podcast, if you have not yet received God's grace, I would call on you to repent and to trust in Christ and be baptized. The rock is Christ. St. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, and we referenced this last week, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So St. Paul makes an interesting observation here. A couple, actually. He says that the rock followed them in the wilderness. He says they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. You might scratch your head and say, but that's not in the, that's not in the story in Exodus. St. Paul says that the rock followed them around. Well, where else are they going to get water from while they're wandering in the wilderness? And what St. Paul is referencing here is a teaching from his time that they believed that the rock followed. It was a rabbinic teaching of Paul's day. 
And St. Paul takes that point and he takes the rock and he says, this is actually Christ. The rock is Christ. And St. Paul says Jesus is that rock. Water is the source of life in the wilderness. And for us, water becomes a source of life when we pass through it. Also, don't forget, Scripture teaches that out of us will flow what? Rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. St. Cesarius of Arles notes that the rock being struck is also a sign of Christ being struck on his side from which flowed blood and what? Water. He writes, when Christ was struck on the cross, he brought forth the fountains of the new covenant. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be pierced if he had not been struck so the blood and water flowed from his side. The whole world would have perished through suffering thirst for the word of God. Let's talk about consequences. In Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11, the psalmist wrote this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Which is an interesting passage of scripture that this gets actually quoted again in the book of Hebrews. Now, interesting that there's a link here between the story of the testing at the waters, well, at the rock, which brought forth the water, and being barred from the promised land. It's interesting, right, because we don't connect those two, but the psalmist here seems to connect their failing the testing here at the waters with their being barred from the promised land. But then you scratch your head and think, well, that doesn't happen until the book of Numbers when they send out the spies. And we know the story. The spies come back and they, oh, the giants, they're too big for us. We're not going to be able to destroy them. We're, we're doomed. We're like little grasshoppers. They're just going to be able to smash us. And then the two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they're like, no, no, God's given us a victory. He's done all these great things for us before. We got this. Let's just, let's go in. The land is ours. It's a good land. Look at the size of these massive grapes. And when what happens? The people murmur and complain against Moses, and God's like, that is it. That is it. You are not going to enter the promised land. You are, that's it. You're done. Every single one of you who said no, which is that entire generation, you are all going to die. <laughs> Yay. You are going to die for your lack of belief. You are going to die for your lack of faith. And so what happens to Israel? They, they wander around in the promised land, and that entire generation that had witnessed the mighty works, the mighty acts, the miracles of God on their behalf, they all die without entering the promised land. And their children are the ones who receive that blessing. There's a link, though, between that story and what happened here at the testing of the waters. As a, You see God's God's wrath here, for 40 years I loathed that generation because they tested me at the waters. They ultimately don't enter, right, because of their lack of unbelief, their lack of trust, that God would give them victory. And I think, I, I don't think it's a stretch, brothers and sisters, to make a connection then because the scriptures do. And oftentimes when we continue on in sin, in an unbelief and in doubt, in lack of faith, Oftentimes, we start to create patterns. Our actions start to create patterns until we find ourselves 
on a very different road than we thought we were on. And that's what happens here, I think. What happens is you have this escalation through these three stories of failing testing in the wilderness that just builds and builds and builds and leads up to their failure to enter the promised land. We see that their failure to enter the promised land as their, I think, ultimate failure of faith and trust in God. And thinking about also what, what, when we talked a little bit about Israel making demands on Yahweh, give me this, it also makes us think of the prosperity gospel. Right? The prosperity gospel promises us that God owes you Right? It's the teaching of the prosperity gospel that it is your right to be healthy and it is your right to be, to be financially secure and independent. And it's interesting how these terms have become fluid and have, have changed because they need to downplay some of the more extreme aspects of it to make it more palatable. But the underlying theology is that if you are a Christian, as your legal right, God owes you a thick wallet and perfect health. And that sounds really good. And so for people who are involved in that movement, it causes them to make demands of God. And God is loving. God is gracious. God is good. And so sometimes God will say, in in his love, he will still graciously do good things for us. But we must never, ever think that when God does good things for us, when we are blessed, when we have enough money in the bank, when we are able to afford to pay for our car, when we have uh, enough clothes in our closet, when our bodies are working good, when we are healthy, we start to think that those are our right, that God owes us. And then as we walk through the wilderness of life, things start to happen. We get sick. Or a family member dies way before their prime. That happened to me. I had an an aunt who out of nowhere developed an incurable brain disorder and she wound up passing away very, very quickly. And the family prayed and prayed and prayed for her healing and yet she still passed away. So we need to be very careful because we can never presume on God's goodness. That his grace, his love for us is something that we can use to assume will be there to get us out of every sticky situation that we place ourselves in in violation to his commandments and to his word. And to his word. And I think the way that we avoid this brothers and sisters, is like what we heard read from Philippians this morning. We're saying, Paul, it's this beautiful, this beautiful passage in, in Philippians about Christ, about the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God the Word becoming, a, becoming human. The ultimate act of humility. That that ultimate act of humility, let this mind be in you, which was in him, which is we are to model that same self-emptying. And we do that for one another. We do that for one another. And we do that in our relationship with God. We empty ourselves of pride. (laughs) We empty ourselves of sin. We empty ourselves of all of those things that snare us. 
And as we humble ourselves in the sight of God, what does Scripture say happens? Those who humble themselves in the sight of the Lord, God will lift up. So let us never presume on God's goodness, on God's love, and think that God owes us something he actually doesn't. And let us learn the lessons of these past three stories that we looked at of the failure of the children of Israel to have faith in God and to trust God. Unless you think I'm being too, too hard, let me, let me just add this. This isn't in my notes. It just came to me now, right? So doubt and dealing with doubt is a normal part of the life of a Christian. And if you're ever part of any Christian group that tells you doubt is a sin, you need to run away screaming from that, well, not screaming, run away from that group. Or if you're in a service and someone tells you you should never doubt because doubt is a sin, you should just quietly get up and exit and leave. And then give me a call and we can have a talk about it. Doubt is a normal part of our lives. And we need to learn to deal with doubt. Absolutely true. And there is grace and mercy and love and care for people who are in doubt. And some people, their doubt, unfortunately, moves them away from faith, partially because they don't know any other way, partially because they may have just been taught horribly. I have several friends from different churches who, who, who used to be, they'd tell me some of the horror stories about, about the churches that they grew up in and some of the, the things that they were taught. And it's interesting. I'm like, well, that's not actually the official teaching of, of that church. You sounds like you got a bad clergy person. And a lot of times, bad clergy are the faults of a lot of people doubting, right? Because a lot of some clergy actually will intentionally sow doubt in the heart of people so they can lead them into a certain path or along a certain path that leads away from the trust in the scriptures, the authority of scripture, the authority of, of the word of God. And that, that can be dangerous, brothers and sisters. But doubt is part of the normal Christian journey. And there's grace there. But we should never get to the place where doubt leads us to question God's love, God's goodness, God's faithfulness, because God will lead us through doubt back into faith. And the faith that you are led back into might look a little different than the faith it was when you first went in, but God will be there with you and lead you through it. And so let us learn the lesson of the people of Israel to keep our faith and our trust in God and our eyes focused on him. So the tests and trials that we face in this life, we may, we may face uh, diligently, that we may face with boldness, and that we may triumph over through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom is due all glory, together with his Father, who is from everlasting, and is all holy, good, and life-creating spirit. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. This is Pastor Mike Landsman, and if you have any questions about anything you heard or would like some more information about our church, feel free to email me, malandsman at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Zion's Stone UCC, or our website, zionstoneucc.com. We have a GoFundMe set up as well for some repairs that we need, gofundme.com slash UCC. As we continue to navigate the fallout from the coronavirus, I'd like to thank everyone for their continued generosity. It always amazes me how generous you've been. And I pray that the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be with you and would keep you. Amen.